Well, in our year through the Bible, Bible readings this week, we've kind of taken another break from the storyline of Scripture, and uh, we're focusing for a few weeks now on some of the wisdom literature, some of the poetry of the Old Testament, and particularly this week, we're looking at a great example of Hebrew wisdom literature, the book of Job. Now, we're not really sure who wrote Job or when it was written, but it beautifully and powerfully explores the difficult question of God's relationship to human suffering. Or as we often put it, why do bad things happen to good people? You ever wondered that question before? Why do bad things happen to good people? That's what the book of Job explores. Now, I don't have to tell you how relevant that question is for us today. We turn on the news and we see death and destruction at the hands of evil men like what happened this past week in Manchester, England. We look at photos of devastation after floods or fires, and earthquakes or after terrible storms. We hear about children killed in a car accident or succumbing to cancer. And we struggle with the question, why? Why should an innocent child die while the drunk driver who caused the accident survives? Why does the fire spare one home but not another? Why does the tornado destroy the church building but not the crack house around the corner? These are the questions that Job's suffering raises for us today, thousands of years after the story was written. So turn with me, if you will, to Job chapter 1. The first two chapters set up the scenario of our exploration of these questions of suffering. First, it tells us about the character and the blessings of Job. We learn what kind of man Job is and, and what kind of life that he lives. Read with me in verse 1. In the land of Uz, there was a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the peoples of the East. His sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified. So these must have been some pretty bad parties. I, Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. So we see Job's character. He's described as a man who was blameless, upright. He feared God and he turned from evil. And he loved his children. He cared for them. He cared for their spiritual state before God. And we learn about Job's blessings. He had ten children. He had hundreds of servants. He had thousands of animals, all these flocks and herds. He had great wealth. No one in all the land compared to Job. But then we are transported from the earth to this heavenly scene. We become privileged to, to, to peer behind the curtain to see what's going on in heaven in this conversation between God and Satan. Now, the word Satan in Hebrew means the accuser. The one who stands opposed. And there's some debate whether this is literally Satan, you know, the devil from the Garden of Eden that tempted Jesus in the wilderness. Is this the devil that he is talking to? Or is this some angel uh, being who, who just is an accuser, who's the one who's going around accusing people of sin before God? 
you know, I think that's probably what Satan does anyway, isn't it? He accuses us. He, he, he roams about the earth looking for people to accuse before God of their sin. And so we read in verse 6, One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. And then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. So here we see Satan has, has appeared before God, but it's not Satan who brings up Job to make the accusation. God brings up Job. And we see here that, that God agrees with the earlier characterization of Job we read about. God also sees that Job is blameless and upright. He fears the Lord and he shuns evil. But then Satan raises a good question. It says in verse 9, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your hands. But on the man himself do not lay a finger then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So, so Satan is raising this question, why does Job fear God? What is his motivation for fearing God and turning from evil? And Satan basically argues that Job only fears God and shuns evil because Job knows it will benefit him materially. Basically, Satan says Job is playing the system. And if God were to take away Job's blessings, then Job would curse God to his face. And so, we next read about Job's suffering. God allows Satan to first strike Job's family, servants, and flocks. Beginning in verse 13, we see that, uh, that um, a messenger comes to Job and says that his ox that were plowing the field, well, the Sabaeans came and took them away and killed the servants. And then the, 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 uh, the sheep that were out on the hillside, fire fell from heaven and consumed them and the servants. And then the Chaldeans came in raiding parties and took away your camels and slaughtered those servants. Oh, and Job, your children, they were all at your oldest son's house celebrating and a tornado came, a storm. And the house fell on them and they all died. In one moment, Job loses everything. Yet look at what Job says in verse 20. At this, Job got up, tore his robe, shaved his head and fell to the ground in worship, and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And in all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Job doesn't curse God like Satan said that he would. So Satan comes back to the Lord and says that, well, you know, anybody would say anything to spare their own life to avoid any direct suffering but if God were to allow Job to suffer a terribly painful disease, then Job's true character will be revealed. So Satan is allowed to strike Job with a horribly painful skin disease. And still, Job's response is, Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And still, Job does not sin in his words against God. But this does raise a serious question in Job's mind. Why am I suffering? 
And for everyone who knew Job, it raises the question, why are such terrible things happening to such a good guy? And so the second chapter ends with the arrival of Job's critics. First, it's his wife who encourages him to just curse God and die and be done with it. And then he has three friends show up, and at first they have a better attitude than Mrs. Job. They mourn and they weep with Job and they sit silently with him for seven days. And everything is great. They're comforting Job until they open their mouths. And then they undo all the good they had done. The comforting turns to criticism, the consolation to critique. And basically they argue that Job must have done something terrible to bring all this tragedy on himself. And so the first two chapters that set up the scenario lead us to the next section of the book, chapters 3 through 37. Let's read those together right now. I'm just kidding. No, chapters 3 through 37 is this debate. Now, the format of the debate is pretty simple. Uh, After Job's sort of initial lament, he curses the day that he was born and wishes he had never been born. After that one of Job's friends will speak up and kind of try to make their case as to why this is happening to Job. Usually it involves, Job, you've done something wrong. What is it? Job then responds and defends himself. And then the second friend will chime in. And then Job responds to that friend. And then the third friend chimes in. And Job responds to that friend, rinse and repeat two more times. And then at the end of this three-cycle back and forth between Job and his friends, this mysterious fourth friend shows up who was the youngest of the group, and so he kept silent through all of this, but finally he's taken all he can stand, and this guy named Elihu comes in at the end, and he gives his little spiel, and that's the end of the debate. Now, there are three premises that Job and his friends are operating on in these debates, and this is really the crux of the book. The first one is this, that God is good and just, and as such, his character compels him to always act justly for the good of others. So that's the first premise. God is good and just, and everything God does is just, and it's for the good of others. Now, the second premise is called the retribution principle. And it's the idea that God has ordered the world so that good deeds are rewarded and evil deeds are punished. Or as we read in the New Testament, you reap what you sow. Now, this is an ancient idea. Job, a lot of scholars believe, is the oldest book in the Bible, that it was written before Moses even wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So this is a very ancient idea, but it's one that's very much still alive today. Today we talk about uh, you get what you deserve. Kesara, what goes around, comes around. We talk about the idea of even karma in some of the Eastern religions. You know, we, we, we talk about you made your bed, now sleep in it, or he who lies down with dogs gets up with fleas. It's, these are all the same idea. And so that's the retribution principle. And then the third premise, depending on who's doing the arguing, is that Job is either innocent or Job is guilty. The question is, has Job done something wrong to deserve what is happening to him? Now, Job's friends are arguing that if one and two are true, if God is good and just and always acts justly for the good of others, and if you reap what you sow, then, number three, Job must be guilty of something. That's the friend's argument. Job's argument is that since three, I am innocent, he knows he's innocent, 
And since, too, you do reap what you sow, Job does believe in the retribution principle, then one must be false. God isn't just. Or God is incompetent. He's just, but He's not just very good at His job. That's sort of where Job lands. And for 34 chapters, this is what Job and his friends argue back and forth, back and forth. And then finally, in chapter 38, God answers from the storm. Go ahead and turn to chapter 38. Job several times has demanded that God give him audience. God, you come down, hold, hold court, and let me plead my case. And I've got some charges for you. And I want you to answer for yourself. And finally, God obliges. He comes down in the form of a whirlwind, a storm. And from the storm, God speaks. And God basically tells Job and his three friends, and, and Elihu even, you're all wrong. You're all wrong. And in chapter 42, verse 7, we see that Job is the least wrong of them all. I mean, Job says more right things about God than any of them, but basically, they all get God wrong. And God responds by taking Job on this whirlwind tour of the universe. And, and he begins with this argument where God is telling Job, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are, Job? Look at chapter 38, verse 2. Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. So Job spent all this time questioning God, demanding God to answer him, and God basically shows up and says, Okay, Job, be a man. You answer my questions. And God begins to question Job. Now, if Job is guilty of anything, he is guilty of his own pride and his own goodness, and his own arrogance and his understanding of how the world works. Job thinks he's got all of this figured out. So God takes the next few verses to demonstrate how complex and amazing is his creation and how limited is Job's view of creation and its creator. For example, he says, look at the earth. Look at verse 4. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Well, don't you love it when God gets sarcastic? <laughs> who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. God says, you weren't there, Job. You don't know how I did it. And then he points to the sea in the next few verses and he says, Job, I did all of this, not you. You weren't there. You don't know how I did it. In verse 19, God asks Job about the origin of light and darkness. Listen to this. What is the way to the abode of light? And where does darkness reside? Can you take them to their places? Do you know the paths of their dwellings? Surely you know, for you are already born. You've lived so many years. Don't you think sometimes God just wants to talk to us that way? I know I deserve it. God is saying, Job, you don't know where it is. You don't know how the light got there. But I made the light, Job. And then God asks him about the snow and the hail and the rain and the frost. Do you know anything about how to store up hell for the day of battle? Would you know how to cut a channel in the sky to make it rain on a land where no man is? 
And then God shows Job the wonders of the cosmos in verse 31. Can you bind the beautiful Pleiades? Can you loose the cords of Orion? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons or lead out the bear with its cubs? Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? So whether it's the sea, the dawn, the snow, or the constellations, Job is ignorant and impotent. He doesn't know where they came from. He doesn't know how to make them work. He is surrounded above and below with mystery. And so are we. Even with all of our scientific knowledge and advancements, we are surrounded by mystery. I love what John Piper said. He said, The scientific advancements of the last 200 years are like sand pails of salt water hauled from the ocean of God's wisdom and dumped in a hole on the beach while the tide is rising. In other words, God is not impressed with our so-called wisdom and scientific understanding. Rather than be impressed with all that we supposedly know, we should be overwhelmed by our ignorance. Just when we think we have something figured out, scientists make some other discovery. And they say, well, you know, we thought it was this way, but now we think it's that way. And give them time, and they'll find some other thing to say, well, that doesn't work the way we thought it did. That happens all the time. God continues in chapters 38 through 39 to then point out all the animals that He created and for which He cares. He gave the lions and the birds the food to eat. And then in 39 verse 1 he says, Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you watch when the doe bears her fawn? Do you count the months till they bear? Do you know the time they give birth? They crouch down and bring forth their young. Their labor pains are ended. Their young thrive and grow strong in the wilds. They leave and do not return. He says, think of it, Job. I'm on top of all of these things. Every wild deer in Georgia that gives birth, I'm there. Every mountain goat in Switzerland, when they bring forth, I am there. I know their months. I care for their young. Think of it, Job. When a man sees a work of God like your suffering, can he see its connection to 10,000 other realities in the world like I can? If not, how will he dare to judge its wisdom? Look at verse 5. Who let the wild donkeys go free? That's not the same as who let the dogs out, by the way. <laughs> who untied his ropes? I gave him the wasteland as his home, the sea salts as his habitat. He laughs at the commotion in the town. He does not hear a driver's shout. He ranges the hills for his pasture and searches for any green thing. Even the wildness of unpredictable creatures are the work of God. When something seems wild and chaotic to us, still they are operating within God's ordered universe. Wild things are a part of God's design. And so are foolish things. He goes on in verses 13 through 18 to talk about the ostrich who walks away from her eggs. And he says, who made her forget wisdom? I did, Job. Even the foolish things are by design. And they have their own glory and their own purpose. Ostriches, and as hard as it is to believe, mosquitoes and gnats and fire ants. I gave them all a perfect design. And God goes on to point out the speed and power of the war horse, the graceful soaring of the hawk, and asks Job, do these things run and soar at your command? No. 
So whether we're considering the prey of lions, the birth of mountain goats, the freedom of wild donkeys, the foolishness of the ostrich, the might of the war horse, or the flight of the hawk, Job is ignorant and impotent. He didn't make them. He doesn't know how to control them. He cannot see what they are doing. And yet this ignorant Job presumes to question the ways of God. All of this leaves Job silent. Look at chapter 40, verse 3. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put a hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. Job says, who are you? God says, who are you, Job? To question me. And then God says, you don't even understand my character. You don't understand my character. Look at verse 8 of chapter 40. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? And is that not what Job has done? Remember, Job argues the retribution principle is true. I am innocent, therefore God must be the guilty party. See, Job does this. He condemned God to justify himself. Do you have an arm like God's? Can your voice thunder like His? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor. Clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at every proud man and bring him low. Look at every proud man and humble him. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them in all the dust together. Shroud their faces in the grave. Then I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. Job and his friends thought they had God's goodness, justice, and power all figured out. Like it was some kind of mathematical formula. They thought they had God pegged. They put God in this nice, neat little box and wrapped it up with a bow. But they didn't understand God's character at all. And God proceeds to dismantle the first two premises of their arguments. He addresses the first premise. You see, God is good and just, yes. But God's character does not necessarily compel Him to act according to our good. At least not the way we think it is. You know, we think we have this idea of what is good for us. But, you know, it's like the old saying goes, Father knows best, right? God knows better than we do what is good for us. So we think, well, God is good and just. That means that He's going to act according to my good. He's only going to do what's beneficial to me. No. God is good and just, but His goodness and His justice compels Him to always act for His own glory. Look back at verse 10 there. He's he's speaking sarcastically to Job, but this is what God is concerned with. Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor and clothe yourself in honor and majesty. This is God's primary objective, to adorn Himself with glory and splendor, with honor and majesty. Because if God isn't glorious and majestic, He isn't God. And then we're all in a world of hurt. God is concerned first and foremost with His glory, not what you and I think is our good. God is good, but His goodness is this. He upholds His glory by bringing low the proud and giving the humble delight in His excellence. 
And then God challenges the second premise, the retribution principle. Really, the entire book of Job is one long critique of the idea that, that, that the good are always rewarded and the wicked are always punished. Throughout the book, we discover two truths. The first is that God's blessings are not necessarily rewards. God's blessings are not necessarily rewards. It's a dangerous thing to start looking at the blessings that you enjoy as somehow a reward that you deserved. Right? We should always look at God's blessings as gifts of His grace. In fact, at the end of the story in chapter 42, God restores everything to Job twofold. He gets twice as many children, twice as many servants, twice as many animals, and he lives happily ever after, and he dies an old man just surrounded by family and friends and and just beloved by the community. His story ends so well. Now, this wasn't some reward. It's not like God said, All right, Job, you passed the test, so I'm going to give you double what you lost. That's not what's happening here. It's a simple gift from the goodness and grace of God. Or as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, God causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Whatever blessing you may possess, it's not because you deserve it. It's not because you somehow found more favor in God's eyes than someone else. You simply found favor in God's eyes because of His grace. Because of His unmerited favor on you through Jesus Christ. But then the second truth we see, not only is, are not all blessings rewards, and I say not all are necessarily rewards, because it is true, God has created the world to some extent where we do reap what we sow to a degree, right? You work hard, you tend to earn. You practice at an instrument, you tend to get better at it, right? You go on a diet and you... Well, that doesn't always work. You see, it's not necessarily... So yes, there is a degree to which you do reap what you sow, but it's not absolute. Most of the blessings we have are simply gifts of grace, but it's also true that not all suffering is necessarily a punishment. Suffering is not necessarily a punishment. Now, Jesus addresses this in John chapter 9. In John chapter 9, it says, As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus said. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Right here you see the disciples are operating on the retribution principle. They see a man who was born blind and they assume that blindness was a punishment for somebody's sin. Just like Job's friends. But Jesus said this man's blindness wasn't about him. It wasn't about his parents. It was all about God. It was for God's glory that this man was born blind. Does that sound familiar? God is first and foremost concerned with his glory. Now, this leaves us with some questions to consider this morning. Some implications for us. The first is this. Why did you follow Jesus? Let's consider... Let's answer the phone, and then let's consider... Why did you follow Jesus? You know, 
that's a good question that Satan raises in the first chapter. Do you fear God and turn from evil simply because you think that somehow God's going to bless you for it? Are you really just looking out for your own interests? What is your motivation today for being here? For giving your tithes and offerings? For volunteering your time? For reading your Bible? Why do you follow Jesus? It's a good question for us to ask. The second question is, how do you handle suffering in your life? How do you handle suffering? Do you try to figure out why you're suffering? And who to blame for it, whether that's yourself. Oh, I must have done something wrong. If only I'd done this. If only I'd done that. God's getting me for X, Y, Z. Or, oh, this is so-and-so's fault. You know, maybe we try to blame other people. Or maybe we try to blame God. Is that how you handle your suffering? Or do you cry out in prayer to God, trusting that your Heavenly Father loves you, and He knows best how to govern the world and your life? Do you turn to the world's wisdom to understand what's happening and how you should respond? Do you look to your own supposed wisdom? Or do you turn to God's Word for wisdom and comfort? How do you handle suffering? And Job's story gives us some things to do when we face suffering because we all will face suffering of some kind in this life, right? Maybe to differing degrees and in differing ways, but we all face loss and suffering. And the first thing we can do is trust God's sovereign will and His good, gracious, and just character. Trust God. Secondly, instead of looking at what God can do for your good, consider how you can live even in your suffering for His glory. Too often we live our lives according to what is going to benefit us. Even in coming to church, even in reading our Bible, even in praying and being a Christian, it's all about that we want good things to happen to us instead of living our life for the glory of God first and foremost. That's what Jesus meant when He said, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, then all this other stuff will be added to you as well. It's all about your priorities. What are you seeking first? That all these things will be added to you and then for God's kingdom and glory? Or are you living first and foremost for God's kingdom and glory? Because if you're living first and foremost for all these things to be added to you, you're going to miss God's kingdom. You're going to miss His glory and His righteousness. Yeah, you might have all this stuff, but at the end of the day, if you're like Job and you lose it all, where do you stand? But if you seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, then you know you've got God and everything else is icing on the cake. Live for His glory, not just for your own good. Number three, rather than wonder why me when bad things happen, ask yourself, why not me? Why not me? You see, when we ask why me, it reveals a self-centeredness. It reveals the arrogance of our hearts. You're basically asking, God, why am I suffering this way instead of that person? It's as if you're saying, why should I suffer instead of that person? Think about that for a moment. The humble, Christ-like, 
and loving attitude is to say, why shouldn't I suffer? Because of my sin, do I not deserve eternal torment in hell? How can I question my suffering as if I didn't deserve eternally worse? I have no more rights to escape trouble than anyone else. Listen to what Jesus said about this in Luke chapter 13. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Instead of thinking so highly of ourselves that we think we're somehow above that, or that we couldn't possibly deserve anything less than the good life of blessing and comfort, we should instead follow Paul's encouragement in Philippians 2 when he said, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of of others. And then he proceeds to talk about how Jesus Christ, who is God, set aside his rights as God to intentionally come to this earth to suffer and die for us. And he is our example. We are to have his attitude and his mindset. How much more should we be willing to lay down whatever rights or comforts we have to suffer? or even die for others. And is that not what we remember on Memorial Day? The men and women who did just that. They suffered and died for us. Number four, consider your suffering from God's cosmic and eternal perspective. Paul said in Romans 8, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Paul says, whatever we're suffering right now, it's nothing compared to the glory that will someday be revealed in us. And 1 Peter 4.13 tells us that glory is the very glory of Christ. He says, but rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. A man named John Henry Newman wrote these words on a card for the father of a young man who died of cancer in 1877. He said, God has created me to do him some definite service. He has committed some work to me, which he has not committed to another. I have my mission. I may never know it in this life, but I shall be told it in the next. I'm like a link in a chain, a bond of connection between persons. He's not created me for naught. I shall do good. I shall do his work. I shall be an angel of peace, a preacher of truth in my own place. While not intending it, if I do, but keep his commandments. Therefore, I will trust Him whatever I am. I can never be thrown away. If I'm in sickness, my sickness may serve Him. In perplexity, my perplexity may serve Him. If I'm in sorrow, my sorrow may serve Him. He does nothing in vain. 
He knows what He is about. He may take away my friends. He may throw me among strangers. He may make me desolate, may make my spirits sink, hide my future from me. Still, He knows what He is about. Now, how do we have that kind of attitude towards suffering? I mean, it sounds good right now, but when we find ourselves in distress, when we feel the unbearable pressures of life and its trials, how do we see our suffering from God's perspective? How do we have the attitude that says, why not me? How do we live a life that seeks God's glory above our own good? By seeking wisdom. By seeking wisdom. James chapter 1 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom... So here he's talking about trials. He's talking about persevering under suffering. And he immediately goes to wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to him. Now in Job 28.28, Job gives us the definition of wisdom. It says, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. Now are these not two of the qualities that Job possessed? In one one, and then God also reaffirmed that Job was a man who feared God and shunned evil. So Job really was a wise man. It's no wonder that God said that Job understood him better than the rest of his friends. But having wisdom, being someone who fears God and turns from evil, listen closely, don't, don't miss this. Having wisdom doesn't guarantee you won't suffer. James didn't say, ask God for wisdom so you won't suffer. No, we're to ask for wisdom so we can persevere in our suffering. Remember, Jesus told a parable about a wise man. He said the wise man built his house on the... All right, let's go back to first grade. The wise man built his house on the rock. And the foolish man built his house on the sand. Now, in the parable, a storm comes. To the foolish man only, right? No. The storm comes to both of them. But the wise man stood because he built his life on the Word of God. Wisdom doesn't mean you won't suffer storms in life. But it means that when the storms come, you will stand. We may never know why we suffer, why bad things happen to good people, but the wise person who trusts in the Lord with all of his heart and leans not on his own understanding, God will guide that person through the storm. God will be a refuge to them, a foundation upon which to build their life so that when the trial comes to pass, they'll still be standing. What about you this morning? Do you fear God? Have you turned from your sin Have you shunned evil and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as the ultimate refuge from life's storms, as the ultimate foundation to hold you up no matter what life may throw your way? If you don't know Jesus that way, then here in a moment when we sing, I hope that you'll come down and let me introduce Him to you. So that no matter what comes in your life, you know you've got an advocate in heaven pleading your case. You've got a friend who will stick closer to you than a brother and will guide you through the dark valleys of life. Whatever you're suffering this morning, whatever your struggle, know that God sees you. 
Know that He hears your pain and your cries. He knows what you're suffering and He cares. And God is able to strengthen you. And He will walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death so that you fear no evil. And He will lead you out to the other side where He's got a table prepared for you and a house that awaits you. Know that His goodness and His mercy pursues you no matter what is going around in your life.